everyone and welcome to another Scots We Hate podcast and today I am joined, rejoined I should say, by the author and storyteller John Burns. Hello John. Hello there. And um, last time we spoke to you, um, oh it was, it was um, heady days of being able to sit in a pub over a coffee and chat but we were able to talk about your novel um, Skydance. That's right, yes it had just come out I think. Yeah, and while we were, during that uh, conversation, you dropped in that you had once done a, a play about uh, Alistair Crowley. Um, I think it was called A Passion for Evil. Is that right? I did indeed. That would be about 10 years ago in the Fringe, yeah. And uh, this was a bit left field for me when I was talking to someone who was okay. writing novels about being up mountains and whatever. So <laughs> I thought it would be really interesting to follow that uh, up and talk to you about it. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's a fascinating character, uh, Crowley. So um, I think, I know it's going to be a big question, but there will be people listening who maybe aren't aware of just who sure. Alistair Crowley was. So can you give us a, 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 an overview if possible? Yeah, he's a very difficult man to sum up in a few sentences, but, but essentially he was, uh, he's known as an, as an occultist. He, stu- he, he made a, a very uh, in-depth study of the occult and and what we would call today black magic uh, and he was also a, a prolific writer a poet and he was um and in his youth certainly um he was a an extremely successful mountaineer see that was so i'll tell you the three things i knew about alistair crowley and you can put out on them because one i think he's on the cover of sergeant peppers is that right that's very true. He 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 really sort of sunk into obscurity as a character um, when, for reasons best known to themselves, the Beatles decided to put him on their cover. And he's got a very famous um, direct stare, which uh, I think he he stares at you out of the cover of the, of Sergeant Pepper's, and that actually rekindled his fame amongst young people. Yeah, and well, because one of the other things I knew about him was that. Led Zeppelin guitarist Jimmy Page had kind of bought his house. He bought his house on the shores of Loch Ness, that's right, a place called Boleskine, uh, which sadly burned down about two years ago. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Oh. Yeah, uh, yeah, well... It, go on. I, I was going to say, and the, the final thing, again, is music-related, and it's what you were talking about, him being known for kind of black magic, because he was seen as an influence on what became known as black metal, and that kind of you know, Sabbath and, and Zeppelin and the kind of heavier side of rock music as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think that was his his practising of the dark arts sort of suited them, you know? But, so how did you become interested in, in, in him as a character? Well, um, I moved to Inverness many years ago now, where I still live today. And uh, as you said, I, 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 I'm... So still very interested in the outdoors and the hills. And I joined Inverness Mountaineering Club. And uh, all the mountaineering clubs in those days used to keep a logbook. And in the front of the logbook was a, a, a very striking image of Alistair Crowley. And um, the, the, the club had sort of adopted him as a mascot because he was a, an infamous character who lived not far from Inverness. Um, and so... Um, I asked people about him, and the, what most people could tell you was he was a madman. Um, <laughs> but um, I became, I decided that I wanted to write a, a one-man play, it's a woman, 
uh, that I could tour. And um, I thought, well, I actually look a bit like Crowley. So um, let's find out more about this guy <clears throat> and see really whether he's someone I could do a one-man play about. So basically, I began to delve into his background. And the more I dug into Crowley's background, the more fascinated I became by this very enigmatic and, uh, and mysterious character. Um, so that's really how I got into him. I mean, because I, I had a brief look um, before I decided we was going to chat to you on his Wikipedia page. And to say it is thorough, I mean, you know, he has got a lot of um, in, information about him. Yes. Masses, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's one of the problems, to be honest. Um, if you, it, it's, it's like researching uh, Crowley is like peeling an endless onion. You take <laughs> off one layer and there's another layer under that and you keep going and you never actually get to the centre of the man. And there's a lot of crying involved as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so you said you kind of discovered him partly as your life as a mountaineer. So what was his life yeah. as a mountaineer like? Pretty exceptional, actually. Um, it's an interesting thing about the man that even today in mountaineering circles, his achievements are, are belittled and brushed under the carpet because he's such a controversial figure. Yeah. But around, the, uh, as I say, he was born in 1875. So um, sort of in his, in his early, you know, late 20s, early 30s, um, he was right at the front of mountaineering um, pioneering. And he, he, he went, he climbed in Britain. Uh, he climbed with a, uh, initially he climbed with a guy called Oscar Eckenstein. And Eckenstein uh, was a few years older than him, but very famous, uh, mainly famous because he, he was the first designer of, uh, of what we would call crampons today, the sort of oh, okay. spikes you wear on your feet. Now, old Eckenstein was the first man to start, start trying to design those. And um, he, he they climbed in the Alps and then he went on to Mexico. And in those days, uh, one of the things that they used to do was try and set speed records for climbing. So he climbed some of the Mexican volcanoes and him and his mate, uh, they, they held for quite some time the world record speed ascent, <laughs> um, which was quite something. I mean, it was, it was, it was uh, they must've been going in something up those hills and that's, that's <laughs> and then he went to uh, the Himalayas on two notable expeditions. He went to climb K2 and Kanchenjunga. Both, uh, you know, are very formidable uh, mountains and, and uh, were not climbed uh, fully until many years, maybe. I think they were climbed in the 50s eventually. Um, and Crowley's ascents probably got uh, higher than anyone had ever achieved on, both, on those mountains. Um, and he was also, uh, he, he developed, he was quite skilled and he developed a, an understanding of altitude sickness and what happened to the human body at altitude. And he also, but he, he was known, his, I suppose his, his, his reputation as a mountaineer was blighted by a couple of things. There was, right. uh, the, there's the story that, that, that one of his climbing partners wanted to go down and uh, Crowley wouldn't allow this. So he, he pulled a revolver and threatened the man, you know, threatened to shoot him if he went down. Um, <laughs> the truth, actually, is, is, is probably a little bit less, uh, less dramatic. Uh, he was, uh, the truth is that he was actually in a tent at high altitude, uh, suffering from malaria and hallucinating. And he thought that the bloke in the tent with him had become a monster. So he produced this revolver 
and uh, but the, the the broken attempt to, just took it off him. It wasn't it wasn't a, a serious attempt, and that that may seem strange that, that that you know he he had a revolver at high altitude, but you've got to remember that this is way way back at the start of the twentieth century, yeah. when climbers were right at the very outer limits of what we understood, what we knew about these mountains, and so they didn't even know what was up there, so they they carried a revolver just in case. Yeah, no, you can completely understand. What was the what age was he when he was doing all this climbing, and was it something that he continued to do through his life? Not, I think he was. That's what he, he did when he was a young man. I mean, yeah. you know, he took a, a very, very high level of physical fitness, which sure. he undoubtedly had. Uh, he would have been in his early thirties doing that, um, and he didn't really. I think he kind of gave up climbing uh, after his first two Himalayan expeditions and went off in search of other things. You know. Oh, it's difficult to kind of marry this picture of uh, this um, adventurer, you know, with his pistol in his pocket, to this <laughs> older gentleman with his, um, you know, uh, the occult um, paraphernalia, uh, either wearing or surrounding him. So, what did he? Was he always interested? Let's turn that on its head. Was he always interested in the occult, or was this something? Well, I think later? my my take on Crow, Crowley was 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 brought up um, the the son of Plymouth Brethren, right? And um, his he, uh, very sadly, when he was a boy of about eleven, his his father, who was a preacher. Uh, a lay preacher who would who would tour uh, the, the English countryside, taking with him his his son, uh, and would preach uh, sermons to the people. His father died very suddenly of cancer of the tongue, and I think that came as as it would do as a terrible shock to the eleven year old Crowley. Yeah. And um, my my belief is that ever since it, 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 it caused him to lose all faith in the religion that his father had pursued, because he obviously felt that God had in some ways let him down by letting his father die. Um, and after that, when he became a younger man, a young man, he began to seek out an alternative belief system. Right. And what what happened was it was it was both a curse and a benefit to Crowley because he was uh, his grandfather was relatively wealthy and when his work his grandfather died Crowley inherited a what was it would you know a reasonable fortune and if he had lived reasonably carefully he could have lived the rest of his life and 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 never had to work and been very comfortable but Crowley wasn't the sort of person to do something like that Crowley um used the money to, to live a, a very profligate life but he he traveled very widely he went to china he went to india he explored all these places and at the time when he when he explored these places he also did everything he could to find out about the religions that the, the people followed what their philosophies were he was a a, 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 a teacher of yoga uh, he, he he became uh, an, an expert at chess he just about everything that he could do he tried to master so right. to go back to your question about how he got into the occult i think that's how it was but but it, it's a little it's it's difficult because when we look at it with with the eyes of of of, of the twentieth or twenty first century, um, the occult and uh, let's say the mysterious dark forces that 
that, 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 there are, that, that may or may not exist, um, are thought of as very strange and esoteric. And anybody who believes in, in, in that sort of stuff is considered a little bit weird, really. Yeah. Whereas when Crowley was studying them, he was studying them around the time when people like Houdini were about, when uh, uh, Arthur, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was around. Yeah. And when really there was not such a divide between what we would consider scientific knowledge and what uh, we would consider esoteric or spiritual or occult knowledge. And at that time, the world really hadn't decided which, which, you know, what was valid and what wasn't. And so there were a lot of people very seriously investigating what we would call the occult. And Crowley developed his own sort of magical system. Uh, he called it, his was a, a sort of a sexual magic. He, he practiced sexual rights as part of his magical system, uh, which and all this involved a lot of drug taking and a lot of very strange goings on. Um, but and I, so that's how he got a reputation as an occultist. It's interesting, you know, as you say, you put it into the context of his time, and certainly um, there was a lot of uh, writers looking at the site, is it psychological or is it supernatural, and the kind of yes, fine line right. between the two, so you get things like, you know, Jekyll and Hyde, or, you know, the influence. Yeah, yeah, right. Same um, yeah. yeah uh, which absolutely, is, or it should be looked, because I think if you, you talk about the occult today, and probably in the late 20th century, and people think either that it's um, horror, as in, you know, mm, yes. horror writing, horror films, that kind of thing, or that it's somehow inverted commas evil. Yes, that's right. That's right. But that wasn't really what was happening, you know, back then, was it? It was a genuine, especially it's what you've told me about Alistair Crowley in, in general, uh, a kind of investigation, another science, if you like. It was yes, it was it was a, it was a journey to to explore, you know, what what was out there, and people genuinely didn't know. I don't know if you've ever seen um, the documentary on. Do you remember there was, um, a, a, I think, a child, or a, they they thought they photographed fairies. Yes, yes. And, and huge numbers of people believed this and took trips to where that site had taken place. Now, I can't imagine you'd get that today. People would just say, oh, it's a con, and that's it. They wouldn't even look at it. Um, so, that, so that's how he, how he got into that. And I think one, in many ways, Crowley was one of the first, I don't know, he was, one, he, he was a modern man in many ways, yeah. in that one of the things that he did at that time, and even in his Himalayan expeditions, he insisted that the native porters, the Sherpas, uh, had their religion uh, respected, whereas previous uh, expeditions led, you know, Prince almost entirely by white men uh, had treated the, the natives with contempt. He didn't do that. And I think also he, Crowley's uh, sin uh, in, in, in the face of, of uh, the public was not that he, he, he practiced homosexuality or bisexuality and took drugs. It was that he was actually open about this. Yeah. And he didn't deny it. And, and, and whereas many people probably did pretty much the same thing that he did, but they didn't admit it. And um, he, so he, he was open about, he said, that do, do what thou wilt. 
uh, you know, he, you should do what, what whatever your will uh, dictates that you want to follow. And that was his his philosophy. Um, so he, he and then he, he was modern in the sense that he was probably the first person to be in a way destroyed by the press. Right. Um, the Daily Mail caught on to him. He, he during the First World War when he was running low on money. He he went to America because uh, he certainly wasn't going to get in, in, enlisted in the in the army. So he went to America, and um, it, during that time, he wrote a small quantity, a, a fairly insignificant amount, but he wrote propaganda for the Germans. Okay. And after the First World War, when the war was over, and he came back to Britain, the Daily Mail campaigned to have him hung, right? Uh, because they said he was a yeah, they wanted to hang him because he was a traitor. And uh, they spent a lot of effort uh, vilifying his reputation and saying that he was involved in things like child sacrifice, uh, all kinds of strange stuff. And, and, and but Crowley, um, <laughs> Crowley never denied anything. So right. he would never either contest these claims or he would never try and, um, you know, vindicate himself. He just let him get on with it. And so his reputation, he got to the stage where his reputation was actually far bigger than he was. Uh, I think there was some, some quote by one of his biographers said, uh, I wasn't going to spend a lot of time whitening Alistair Crowley's reputation when he himself spent a lot of time blackening it. <laughs> so it was, he, he reveled in this. He, he reveled in the attention. He reveled in, the, in, in, in what the press was saying about him. And it gave him his... It gave him a certain kind of status, so he never bothered to try and defend himself. So, how well known was he? What kind of public figure was he back then? Oh, he was—I would say he was pretty well known. He—he uh, he was infamous rather than famous, I would yeah. say. But uh, he would—he would have been a celebrity without a doubt. I mean, yeah. he, anyone, mo most people you spoke to would have known who Alistair Crowley was. They wouldn't have had a good word to say about him, but they would have known who they thought he was at least. Yeah. Um, and he he wrote prolifically. He wrote. Uh, it's difficult to imagine, but what he did was he would write books and poems. I think above all, Crowley wanted to be a poet. Right. And he, he, he but he, but again, I think the fact that he had a fortune behind him uh, didn't do him any service because when he wrote books, he didn't write them for publication uh, as we do today. He wrote them almost to be collector's items, and he he spent a fortune having these books, you know, lavishly bound and and, and preserved. And um, so he never had to submit his work to an editor. He was effect effectively, I suppose, self-published. Self and because he could afford to do that, a lot of his work never got that kind of scrutiny. And whereas he might have been quite a good writer, had he had to get his work past an editor, um, he never got that way. Um, so that, so, so, but his, his books, and he has a, uh, there's the Lash Tower website, which is, he still has a lot of followers today. And, and so he was quite widely read at the time, even though it was scandalous. He, that's a good question. Um, he probably wasn't that widely read because when he published these books, they were, if you like, collector's items. And so that they were only published in relatively small numbers. Um, but what was widely read were the reports about him in the press. 
Right. So the press would report him as this 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 terrible, ghoulish, evil figure, and nobody ever read anything that he wrote to find out any different. <laughs> so, <laughs> in, in in a sense, he was kind of like early tabloid fodder, was it? If he was reported That's to be exactly having, what he was. Yeah, exactly reported to be having you know uh, taking drugs and and orgies and all of these things. Um, you can see how yes. uh, the Daily Mail of the time would have been shocked but yet stuck it on the front cover well it, it sells papers and crowley certainly sell papers and uh, obviously towards the end of his life um he he actually became uh, he was a heroin addict but he was a what happened was i think he i think he broke his leg when he was uh probably about 40. and uh in those days you have to remember that you could buy heroin over the counter so he went, uh, his doctor prescribed him heroin for the pain in his leg, and he became addicted. And for, so for the rest of his life, he struggled with this heroin addiction. And uh, as his money ran out, he found it more and more difficult to, 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 to sustain his lifestyle and had to fall back on, on sort of, if you like, wealthy patrons who, who, who helped him. And uh, he... Um, eventually uh in the second world war found himself in a in a, a bed and breakfast in hastings uh where he was uh, where there were uh, british airmen was stationed and uh he became quite a, a celebrity with them because he he had quite as you can imagine crowley had quite a few stories to tell yeah. and uh, they, they quite liked him and then eventually i think he 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 was looked after and his health failed and he died uh, just after the Second World War, in about 1947. And what what uh, age would he have been? He would be about about 70. Right. Okay. Uh, no, just uh, yeah. Uh, let's see. But yeah, around about early 70s. So his popularity popularity is probably right the the right word. But um, <laughs> he has. His reputation could have carried on, particularly in parts of popular culture. And why do you think that was? Just because this was, it was seen as something a bit dangerous, a bit salacious? Um, well, I think what happened was, uh, now, uh, I think Sergeant Peppers came out about 65. Is that right? Something like that. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and I think his, Crowley's views, which were basically, um, don't accept any rules, just do exactly what you want follow your conscience, not anybody else, um, happened to chime with, uh, if you like, the flower children of that period. And because his, his, his philosophy, philosophy and his, his uh, um, sort of ex exploration of mysticism, if yeah. you remember the Beatles were quite into that sort of thing, um, he, he, uh, he chimed with them. So he kind of became famous again and people began to read his writings and his works, which are which are prolific, and and that gained him a following, which which still exists today. And how you uh, talk about today? How do you think he is looked upon today, if at all? Well, um, well, there are certain people who certainly uh, revere him and follow his works. There's, there's a lot of people that do. Um, history, I suppose, has kind of dismissed him as, uh, I, I think, the, as a, a, a sort of eccentric 
uh, madman. Uh, I, I think uh, from what I've looked at him, uh, I think Crowley certainly was not anyone I would consider insane. Mm -hmm. I think he was someone who he, he, he ferociously sought the truth. Whether he ever actually found the truth is, is another question. But I think he was fearless in his in his search for it. And, you know, his his courage was undoubted. The things that he did in the Himalayas, his, his climbing career displays that. Um, so I think, that unfortunately, as I said right at the outset, his... His climbing exploits tend to be belittled these days yeah. because of his reputation. But if, in fact, you look at what he achieved, it was, in my view, considerable. So I think that that, that uh, whilst he, uh, they say that there's a fine line between madness and genius, and certainly I think at, at times Crowley walked that line um, and could. I think if he'd been around today, he possibly would have been a stand-up comedian. He would have been someone famous. He would have uh, made a mark uh, because his 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 wit, his, his and his and his immense knowledge and understanding. Uh, I suppose uh, you know he he just didn't quite have the talent that 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 other writers had at the time. So I think that he's he's a there is so much about him as you said. You know, if you start looking, uh, I think Lawrence Sutton, who was one of his biographers, one of his many biographers, yeah. studied him for 10 years and still didn't feel that he got to the bottom of the man. And that's the kind of person he was. Because I was trying to think, um, could you say that there is a contemporary character who is uh, like him? But I, don't, I couldn't come up with one. It seems like he really was almost a kind of one-off. He kind of was. I mean, I could see him like a, a kind of Stephen Fry character almost. Right. He certainly had that. I don't think he had quite had Stephen Fry's brilliance, but I think he, he certainly had his knowledge, his flair, uh, perhaps Byron, someone like that. He wasn't, yeah. he wasn't a writer of anything like their stature at all. But, but, but nevertheless, I think he, he probably would be the kind of minor celebrity that you would see on TV these days. He'd be a uh, great... Yeah, um, he'd be a great Big Brother contestant. You know? <laughs> uh, well, that would be that would get viewing figures from. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly would. Um, but a kind of polymath who has—he seemed to be really interested in many, many things, and not just yeah. not just on a superficial level. He wanted to learn a lot about them. Yes. Yes, that's right. I mean, there are rumours that he was a chess grandmaster. That's actually not true. But he had the ability. He could have been if yeah. he wanted to be. But what way? He went along to a, a tournament in which there were several grandmasters, and realised that basically grandmasters were were geeks. So he decided uh, that wasn't something he wanted to do, uh, and so he, he he pulled out of chess very quickly. So I'm fascinated that this character, and with all the reputation he has and everything lived in what uh, is often seen as a quite conservative part of Great Britain on the banks of Loch Ness. Is, was he there for a long time? Um, not that long, about right. 15 years, something like that. But well, what happened was um, he returned from um, one of his great tours and, his, and, lived, and, and, and lived in London. But um, basically, the press wouldn't leave him alone. Right. And he, he found that, you know, when he tried to practice black magic, you know, the neighbours would bang on the walls and stuff like ah. that. So uh, he wanted to find somewhere that was peaceful 
that he could practice his magic without interference. And that's why he found, he went to Boleskine, uh, because Boleskine faces north. And, and his view was that a, a magical house should face north. And there is a corridor that leads straight from the door into an, or there was before it burned down, into an octagonal room that he had built at the back. And that was where he practiced his, his rituals. So uh, he came here, basically, I suppose, like, like a lot of people, for peace and quiet. Yeah. I just, how did the, how did the, uh, the locals take to him? <laughs> well, the locals were, uh, were, were basically afraid of him. <laughs> and uh, I, I can understand that to a degree. Uh, there's a story that um, where he, he lived, it's on the side of Loch Ness, and the locals would go uh, to the market in Inverness every Friday and they'd sell their sheep and all that sort of stuff. And, of course, they'd get drunk. And so they'd come back uh, by cart uh, past his house um, late at night, all singing and carrying on, you see. And Crowley got a bit fed up with this. So what he did was he constructed the head of a monster. <laughs> and uh, when, when they came back past one Friday night, he, 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 he ran along with it on the other side of the hedge. Uh, they were so frightened they never used that route again so I think the, the truth is the locals avoided it <laughs> and so when you took this uh, your show to, to Edinburgh um, a, how, how was that to do a, a one man show about someone you know so uh, intricate and complex it was if I, well if I'd known how difficult it was going to be I'd never have done it you know um, yeah. I think it, it was very difficult, um, partly at least because um, I got uh, a lot of my audiences, are, you know, about a quarter to a third of my audiences were Crowley devotees ah. who came along to see the play. Um, and unfortunately, most of them had a lot of good to say about it um, because a lot of the things you hear about Crowley are, 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 are essentially um, inaccurate. Right. At least I, I, I did present what, what, what it was, as far as I could, an accurate uh, portrait of the man. Oh, that's interesting. Um, that, it's interesting that people who um, were devotees of... That's, that's difficult. That's a difficult crowd when you've got someone who basically is almost yeah. head of a religion yeah. for some people, and they're sick. Yeah. Well, they were experts on him, yeah, yeah. yeah. I got pulled off a few times that... Forgetting the odd, the odd word wrong, he wouldn't have said that. <laughs> it was, it was, they, they, they were real experts. But uh, overall, I think it, 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 I got good reviews from them. And uh, I was going to ask whether you would ever think of touring it again, but it sounds like maybe it was uh, quite a hard old gig to do. It was a hard old gig, and I think I, I wrote it a long time ago now, and I think I, 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 I might well do something else with him. But I wouldn't do that play. I would try and write and perform something different. Uh, he, he could have endless fun with Crowley. You really could. Well, I have to say, John, it's a character I hadn't thought about for many, many years till you had mentioned him in our previous conversation. But having talked to you uh, today, I, I really do want to learn more about this slightly <laughs> strange man. And I think the, the main thing that you said is, was about the way that you're looking at the man in his time rather than, you know, in a modern context. Yes. I think that's always yes. important to do uh, and often gets overlooked. 
Yes, that's right. That's right, indeed. Well, I hope you do enjoy exploring Mr. Crowley. Uh, there's, there's an awful lot of literature out there about him, and uh, you'll probably be reading for the next 10 years anyway. <laughs> well, uh, John, thanks again very much for joining us. I really enjoyed that. Okay, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. And uh, we'll be back soon uh, talking to someone completely different. Cheers. Mm -hmm.